morning and welcome back to Alger Assembly of God. We do welcome you back to our series and our study on Elijah. So we've been going uh, verse by verse through all of uh, the scriptures here in the book of 1 Kings, the ones that deal with and involve Elijah, powerful prophet. And we've seen uh, some very well-known scriptures as well as some not so well-known. We've just been covering them verse by verse. Uh, some of those instances and stories that uh, maybe you've heard or seen or taught uh, or been taught over the years and uh, covering some of them that maybe have been overlooked. And so we're just going verse by verse all the way through. I'm going to invite you to get your Bibles, get your um, your smartphones, your tablets, however you, you've got your copy of the Word of God. Get ready, get them out, and uh, we're going to be going through an entire chapter today. So we're going to get moving. First, First Kings chapter 21. First Kings chapter 21, it reads like this, sometime later, stop right there. 1 Kings chapter 21, for those of you who are faithful and maybe you're jotting down notes and, and you're ready week by week by week, some of you are saying, hold on, Pastor Mark. Last time, last week, we just finished 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're jumping into 1 Kings chapter 21. What's going on, Pastor Mark? Let me answer that for you. A couple of things. First of all, this is a, a study in a series on Elijah. Elijah is not mentioned, he is not located in 1 Kings chapter 20. However, we're going to jump back and we'll kind of review for you what did take place in that chapter of 20, because when it says sometime later, it's sometime later after what just happened. And since we're not covering what just happened, you're wondering what happened. So here's what happened. In chapter 19, remember, we had the, the powerful study, the powerful uh, experience of Mount Carmel, the uh, showdown with the prophets, false prophets of Baal and Asherah, and then leading into uh, fire being called down, and then rain being called down, and uh, then we had this uh, anointing, if you would, of Elijah finding Elisha, the prophet who would follow him. So the sometime later, we are, we are right about... Three years from that, from the Mount Carmel time, from his uh, discouragement, depression time, and God, you know, encouraging him with all of that. So we're about three years later. That includes the events of chapter 20. So let's just try to summarize that for you, and then we can jump into chapter 21. In chapter 20, what we see is Ben-Hadad is the king of Syria. He sends messengers to King Ahab. That's the wicked, evil, sinful king that we've encountered and that God has used Elijah to speak into. He's the king of Israel. So Ben-Hadad of Syria sends messengers to King Ahab of Israel, and he basically says this. He declares that all of Ahab's gold and silver and women and children would now be his. Now, you listen to that, and, and this is a, a king, and he's got 32 other kings with him, and Ahab doesn't resist. Ahab actually says, surprisingly, okay. And in response to that, Ben-Hadad then sends messengers a second time and says, okay, well, in addition to gold and silver and women and children, I'm going to have my people come, and they're going to have a look-see around, and anything else that's of value, anything else that we like or we want, we'll take that too. Now, Ahab said yes the first time. Ahab says, 
I can't say yes to this. So he says no. That makes Ben-Hadad mad. He and the other 32 kings gather with them against King Ahab and Israel. So he is vastly outnumbered. He's got about 7,000 in his army, which is unique. Remember just a little bit ago, Elijah was saying, I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm alone. And God says, I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed to Baal. So God had a remnant of 7,000 who were seeking him. And that remnant was about the remnant, the number-wise, that King Ahab had in his army. Here's the mighty thing. God sent a prophet. It's not Elijah, but God sent a prophet to King Ahab, declaring that he would fight on Israel's side. Now, isn't this amazing? In the midst of a wicked, sinful, evil king, not only is God speaking to him through Elijah, God's using other people and other prophets to speak into his life, which is a great encouragement, side note, reminder for us to pray for non-Christians, unbelievers, those in power, those in authority, those simply all around the world who don't know Jesus Christ. God's speaking and moving in some mighty ways. He sends this prophet, and he declares God's going to work. And as a result, King Ahab's going to know that the Lord is the Lord over all. So Ahab and his small army advance against King Hadad and Ben-Hadad and 32 other kings. They advance. The enemy flees. But God sends a prophet now a second time to King Ahab and says, don't get too caught up in this because they're going to try the same thing next year. Get ready, get prepared. So here's what happens. The enemy believes that Israel's God, he must be a God of the mountains. Surely he's not a God of the valleys. So we're going to attack next year. We'll attack them in the valleys and defeat them. If only somebody would make a song about that. That the God of the mountains is also the God of the valleys. Here's what these individuals said. Well, God fought for them in the mountains, but this God can't do anything in the valleys. And the encouragement and the reminder for you and I is, yes, in fact, the God of the mountains, the God of the high points in our lives, is also the God of the valleys, the difficulties, and the struggles in our life. King Ben-Hadad and his 32 kings, this was their plan they put in place. And just as God said it would happen, the next year they attacked in the valleys. God as well was fighting on their behalf. It was not going to be for King Ahab's sake, but it was for, again, God's sake. They attacked. The battle took place. Israel defeated 100,000 soldiers in a day. This small, outnumbered army, because it was God fighting on their behalf, not once, but a second time. King Ben-Hadad is convinced to say, well, play nice. Maybe they will be gentle and go easy on you. So he comes and basically submits himself to King Ahab. And he says, I'm going to restore the cities that we took from you. This was a guy who wanted everything within Israel. He's been beaten up. And so now he says, by the way, I'll give you back what we took from you. And King Ahab goes for it. He says, wow, thanks. We'll take that. Go your way. And let's 
King Ben-Hadad go? The interesting thing is God then sends a prophet for a third time to speak to King Ahab and say, listen, you've just let this man go. This was not according to my will or my plan. This was going to be you were defeating them to bring me honor, to bring me glory, and it would be judgment on him, and you let him go. So it's basically life for life. There's going to be consequences on you, King Ahab, as a result. So at the very end of chapter 20, he basically sulks and heads home, sad, mad, angry, depressed, and displeased. And that leads us to chapter 21. So three years included in them are these battles that God has done incredible on their behalf. God spoke to his heart three different times through a prophet, and we come to chapter 21. Sometime later, there was an incident. How many of you know when you hear those words, uh, there was an incident today? You hear about that at work? You hear about that at school? You hear about that in the home? (laughs) Um, Did you hear about the incident Whenever you hear about the incident, it's not very good news. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden. Pause right there. Just in the natural, doesn't it seem kind of interesting that he wants to take a vineyard... And put veggies in it. You might think it was the other way. That he wanted to take veggies and and make it into a vineyard to make wine so they could drink and get drunk. No, he wants this vineyard and he wants to put veggies there. He wanted something that wasn't his. He's not the only one. Right? When it comes to coveting, when it comes to wanting stuff, don't we all tend to want stuff that's not ours? I mean, even from little kids on up to adults, we're a little bit over a a month away from Christmas. Don't we see all the commercials and advertising and magazines and pamphlets and, and, and store ads? I mean, back in the day, it was kind of the, you know, the, the Sears or the Pennies or the Montgomery Wards catalog, the Toys R Us catalog, and you'd flip through, you would find things you had no clue existed As soon as you saw them, you wanted it. I didn't even know they had this, but I can't live without it now. And then we chuckle at at kids who circle everything in the toy toy page. Then we become big kids and we kind of do the same, right? We look at the ads, we look at the commercials, and and we like stuff. We, We want stuff. There's that desire for stuff. King Ahab wanted some stuff. He wanted this vineyard that Naboth owned that was right next to his kingdom, to his palace. Let me have it for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. Now, at first glance, this seems pretty logical, right? The king wants something, but he says, hey, I'm willing to give you something better. I'll take your vineyard. I'll even give you a better vineyard. It might not be as 
easy and accessible as this one. This is convenient for you because it's your property, and it's convenient for me because it's next to my property, but I'll give you a better one, and if that's not good enough, well, then I'll, I'll pay you for it. Seems logical, doesn't it? In the midst of this, in the midst of Ahab and his wife Jezebel, we, we've seen this is a, a rather ungodly culture Elijah's a man of God. Naboth, as we see, is a man of God. How in the world can we live godly in the midst of an ungodly culture? We're going to look at a handful of principles this morning from chapter 21. So first of all, a godly principle in an ungodly culture is this. We must stand on God's word. In the midst of this, we're going to see two different situations in our text where both Naboth and Elijah were standing on God's word. So we continue. Verse 3, Naboth replies, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. That's kind of short and to the point, and, and we read that, and we don't quite understand. I mean, what's the big deal, Naboth? king wants it. I mean, you can kind of swap it in for something better or sell it to him for some cold, hard cash. I mean, wouldn't that be a good deal? Think back with me a little bit. We're, we're here in the book of 1 Kings, but think back as God brought the Israelites out of Exodus. They wandered in the wilderness, and then God brings them into the promised land. And, and that's pretty much what the book of Joshua is about. We spent in months covering the book of Joshua, including where God divided up the land. God divided up this promised land amongst all 12 tribes. There was land given to each tribe. Each tribe then would take that land and divide it up amongst their clans and families. So every household, every family was given land as a possession. And God's instructions were they were to hold on to this. They were not to sell it. It was to stay in their family's possession. Now, they could rent. They could lease. But here was the concept. Every 50 years, it would revert back to the original owners so that there was always that possession of that land. So you say, well, how in the world would you rent or lease? Well, if there's only a few years left until that 50th year, this year of Jubilee when everything is returned, well, then you, you pay a lot less because you're not going to have the land as long before it reverts back. If you've got 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years until then, you'd probably pay a little bit more. So God's instruction was rent, lease, but this is to be your possession. Work it, own it, possess it. So if Naboth sold this to the king, he's losing it as a family inheritance because the king is not going to follow back and turn that back over to him. And if he does that, he's going against what God's word had said or instructed to the people. So in the midst of his leader, the king, wicked, evil, sinful, powerful king, Naboth very simply says, no. The Lord forbid I would sell something that's been in our household that God has said we are to hold on to. He's standing on the word of God. Now, they don't have scriptures 
quite like we have. I mean, we are inundated with Bibles and Bibles and apps, and we've got access upon access to God's Word. They've got some things that were written, most of which was verbally passed down generation upon generation and still standing upon God's Word. How many of you know God's Word does not change over the years? We look at a day like today and an ungodly culture like today, and we see people trying to change God's Word to fit preference. Trying to change God's word to fit where the culture seems to be going and what the culture says is accessible. The culture says, I want this, so let's make God's word say that. Many, many years had passed since God's word was given. God's instructions were given. Naboth was still standing on God's word. That's one principle for you and I in the midst of an ungodly culture. God's word doesn't change. Stand firm upon his word. Well, let's see how Ahab responds. Verse 4, he went home sullen and angry because Naboth had said, I will not give you the inheritance. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. What does that sound like to you? Little kid, little toddler. He doesn't get his way. He stomps out of the room in a huff, right? Some, some little kid who out on the playground, they're not playing the way I want to play, so I'm going to take my ball and go home. This, it sounds like that little kid. This is the king. He didn't get what he wanted, and so he sulked to his bed. Here's where Jezebel comes in. Verse 5, his wife came in and asked, why are you sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered, because I said to Naboth, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Stop there. Is what King Ahab said true? Yes. Was it the whole truth? No. You and I many times do exactly what King Ahab did. We speak truth, just the truth we want to get out there. It's kind of the half-truth. I mean, yeah, he just wouldn't give it to me. There was a reason why, and you totally left out the reason why about God and his instructions. You just simply made it as if Naboth was being mad and stubborn. So Ahab responded in a half-truth. Jezebel said, verse 7, is this how you act as king? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth. What does that sound like? Ahab, wicked, evil, sinful king. Jezebel, wicked, evil, sinful queen. She's about to get ready in action. She's got a plan in place. And she's about ready to, quote, unquote, execute it. Are you ready for her plan? Continue with me. Verse 8, she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, sent them to elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city. Verse 9, in these letters she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting. Stop right there. The wicked, evil, sinful queen, this ungodly woman is using a godly event, a day of fasting, for an 
ungodly motive. She's saying, proclaim a day of fasting, seat Naboth in a prominent place, but, verse 10, seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he's cursed God and the king. So she's a wicked, evil, sinful queen, but she knows enough about God and his word to say, here's how I can get rid of him. I'll just, I'll make a holy event, a holy day, a day of fasting, and I'll say that Naboth, he spoke out against God. He's cursed God and the king. Then take him out, stone him to death. Verse 11, elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed. Verse 12, they proclaimed a fast. Seated him in a prominent place. Verse 13, two scoundrels came, brought charges against him. Naboth has cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Verse 14, they sent word to Jezebel. Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that, she said to Ahab, Get up, take possession of the vineyard. Naboth refused to sell you. He's no longer alive. But dead. Oh well. She just told Ahab, get up, cheer up, I'll take care of it. She takes care of it and says, get up, cheer up. <laughs> He's gone. He's dead. Now, you can look at this different ways and, and some people wonder, well, did Ahab know? Did he not know? He either had to be complicit and then he allowed her to use his seal if not, at the very least, he knows what she's capable of. She tells him, get up, cheer up, I'll work it out for you. And immediately, Naboth dies and she says, oh, by the way, he's dead. Now you can have his property. If he was not complicit in it, he at least knows enough to add two and two. And no matter what kind of math you use, it's going to turn up four. He knows what's going on here. Verse 16, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Verse 17, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. God brings him in again. Chapter 21. So with Naboth, Naboth was standing on the word of God. God said, here's the instructions about the property and, and how it's to, to be in your family, it's to be your possession. Naboth was standing on God's word, even in the midst of opposition from a king. At the end of this particular text, Elijah is ready to stand on God's word. Multiple times we've seen this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. We've touched on that, that theme about hearing and being sensitive to and understanding and knowing God and his word. If you're like Naboth, you've got to know what God has to say to be able to stand upon it. And if you're like Elijah, you've got to be able to hear what God has to say to be able to stand upon it. If we don't know what God's word says, then we can't stand upon it. In the midst of an ungodly culture, one way to live godly is to stand firm, stand upon the word of God. Get into it, read it, learn it, understand it, memorize it, study and understand what God has to say. Stand on his word. 
Second principle in the midst of an ungodly culture is this. Know that God sees. Know that God sees. See, we can often get a little irritated, a little agitated, a little frustrated when people get away with things. Right? Let's say you're driving on the highway. All of you drive exactly the speed limit, not a mile or two over. Right? 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 So you're driving the speed limit, but somebody else, some idiot in another car, flies past you like you're standing still. So whether or not you might be a mile or two or three or four over, they are doing much worse than you. They've got to be doing 80 or 90. And what's the phrase? I've heard it in different vehicles. I've probably said it myself. You look around. Where's a cop when you need one? What does that mean? It means I might have been breaking the law a little bit, but he or she was really breaking it. I mean, why don't they catch him or her? They're doing something super duper bad. We tend to have that same thing, and then we, we kind of translate it into the spiritual. And we say, we look around, we see people doing wrong and people sinning, and sometimes it seems like they're prospering. God, why are the sinners prospering? Why are the, the believers many times going through some challenges? And we look around, or we look up, and we say, where's God when you need him? Because much like in the previous illustration of driving on a highway, our assumption is they must not be aware of this person driving 80, 90, 100. They just have no clue. Sometimes in the spiritual, we think that about God. God has no clue what's going on. Doesn't he see what she's doing? Doesn't he see what he's doing? How are they getting away with this, God? Know that God sees. Here's what verse 18 says. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, and in verse 18 says, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel. I find that humorous. We've been seeing God speak to Elijah multiple times. It's almost like he's kind of reminding him. I know it's been a few years. You know, I used a, a couple of other prophets to speak to him these last few years. So just refreshing your memory, it's Ahab. Ahab's the king of Israel, you know, the one that you had the, the showdown on Mount Carmel and all that. Yeah, that king, he rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Understand that God hears what's being said and sees what's being done. Nothing escapes his attention. Now, from our perspective, we think, oh, God has no clue. Like when we see someone breaking the rule and breaking the law and we look around, where's the authority figure to arrest them? They must not know. Know that God sees. Know that God hears. Know that God understands. Nothing gets past him. It's, it's a little bit of maybe comfort for us when we see wrongdoers seemingly getting away with things. God sees. It doesn't get past him. So sometimes it's a, a little bit of an encouragement or a comfort to us. Okay, God sees what's going on. 
But it should also be that reminder and challenge to us as well. God sees and hears what we say and do. Right? We might think no one sees. We might think no one hears. We might think no one knows. But God does. And sometimes it takes time before things come to light. Studying and preparing for this, unfortunately this last week were two illustrations of this brought to light in a Christian community. I won't use names. But I came across a story this past week about a man of God, a pastor, pastoring a large church. You wouldn't say it's a, a, a nationally or uh, maybe nationally known church, but pastoring a large church, seemingly of a thousand or more, candidating at another church. And the issue comes out, stories come out, in light of the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement. Abuses of individuals, not just in power, but unfortunately sometimes in the house of God. About this individual who was a youth pastor at the time, so probably somewhere in the 20s, dating an individual in the church, but at the same time dating an individual began carrying on two relationships with girls from the youth ministry. Hidden in secret of the 17, 18-year-old age, technically 18 of age. And you read the, the stories and the testimonies of both girls, including some photos. This youth pastor who secretly carried on both of these at the same time as dating the other person went to the point of talking to one of the girl's parents, convincing them it was he and her, and somehow got permission to take her from the Midwest. They flew out to Las Vegas alone together. There's photos of them at the airport in a limo at the hotel. From her testimony, it was something that led to physical and to sexual, including alcohol and gambling on his part. Comes back. He's now dangling all three of them. It blows up in his face. The two girls share their story. Pastor and church basically shut it down, dismiss them, say, sweep it under the rug. He magically gets married to the one he'd been dating almost immediately, leaves the church for another church, and all, all set, all taken care of. Years go by, it seems like nothing's been seen, nothing's been done. He's now pastoring this mighty church, candidating in another church. Allegations are brought to light. So now what do you have? You've got a lot of infighting. The congregation he pastors and the congregation he's headed to both love him and think that these two are out to get him. And then you've got others who say, what about those who have been abused, what about, what about the victims? Don't they and their stories and their credibility and their details and their figures and their photos, don't, don't they matter? See, what's said and what's done might not be immediately dealt with, but God sees and knows. And just in the last several days, 
Christian comedian, extremely well-known, one that I follow. Not arrested on anything, but news and details came out that he was using his position, holding, in a sense, tickets to some of his events over young girls to convince them to do certain things. And apparently this has been going on for quite a while. Multiple girls were found. Multiple stories were accounted. He basically came clean and said, yeah, it's been going on. I admit, I've fallen. Popular at the height of, quote, success. Even in a Christian realm, being recognized all over the place. Been at the Opry, Netflix. Had a comedy special coming out. Canceled the comedy special. Canceled his tour. It's not just the unbeliever that we say God sees and knows. As a believer, as a Christian, how we live our life, understand God sees and hears and knows. In the midst of an ungodly world, when it seems like other people aren't seeking after God, let that be the encouragement and the challenge God sees and knows. Let us live to seek and honor and please him. So in the midst of an ungodly world, we stand on his word. We know that God sees. Number three, we've got to speak out God's truth. Even when sometimes the message is hard to accept like this. Not only was he to say that he understood and knew what was taking place, verse 19, say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Whoa! Can you imagine going to a boss? Can you imagine going to a national leader in power and authority and saying, Yeah, because of what you've done, judgment. You had him? Stoned and he was bleeding to death, you're going to die in a very similar way. Dogs will lick up your blood. How's that for boldness and truth? Verse 20, Ahab says, So you found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. How about that for a phrase? King Ahab. It's not just that you're doing wrong. It's not just that you're making some mistakes. It's not even that you're intentionally doing some things wrong. He says you've sold yourself to do evil. Verse 21, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I'll wipe out your descendants, cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I'll make your house like that of Jeroboam and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you've aroused my anger and caused Israel to sin. Verse 23, oh, and... In case you thought I'd forgotten about Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. In the midst of all that, God's had Elijah speak some pretty straightforward, truthful things. At the very beginning, we saw him declaring to Ahab, There will be no rain on this land. And he went and God took care of him with the ravens, with food and with water. He then declared, 
God is God. The one who answers by fire is God. He declared that. God answered by fire. He declared God was about to bring rain. See, he's, he said some pretty straightforward things. But now he's saying, Ahab, judgment's coming. Consequences are coming. Based on what you've done, here's what's taking place. It's one thing to say no rain. One thing to get rid of followers, but to speak this blunt truth to the king's face, that's speaking God's truth. We're called to speak God's truth, called to speak that in love to those that we're around. Stand upon God's word and speak it. Many times, like with King Ahab, they might not want to hear God's word and God's truth. Because in a culture like today, here's what we hear. Well, that's good for you. People say, well, that's your truth. But this is true for me. How many truths are there? There's one truth. You, know, you can't say, well, I feel like two plus two is five. I, I kind of feel like that. No, two plus two is four. That's what it is. No matter how we feel at the time. He is saying, I'm speaking not what you feel like, King Ahab. I'm speaking God's truth to you. You've disobeyed. You've done all of these sinful things. Judgment and consequences are coming to you and to Jezebel. So in the midst of this ungodly culture, we stand firm upon God's word. We speak out God's truth, knowing that God sees all. But here's a final thought. And it might be a little bit of a twist that we don't quite expect. In the midst of an ungodly culture, understand God's grace. Here's what we read in verse 25. It reinforces everything we know about King Ahab. Verse 25, there was never anyone like Ahab. And we look and say, thankfully, there's never anyone quite like Ahab. He sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. In other words, this was quite a couple. This was quite a pair. Evil, sinful he behaved in the vilest manner, verse 26, by going after idols like the Amorites that the Lord drove out before Israel. I mean, this description, never anyone like him. Normally, it's a positive. Man, you should see him. You should see her. I've never seen anything like it. It's usually in the most positive sense. These couple of verses say his sin the evilness, the vileness, there's no one quite like him. But are you ready for the twist? In the midst of a wicked, evil, sinful man in a sinful culture, verse 27 says, When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Wow. You're trying to wrap your minds and your brains around that one. Ahab 
sackcloth and fasting, meekness and humility, man, that just does not add up. That's completely opposite of those two verses we just read about him. It it doesn't make sense. God's response is grace. God's response is mercy. And we look at that and we say, are you kidding, God? Are you serious? You're going to let up on this guy? You're not going to bring about all this judgment in in his lifetime? And while he sees it, it's going to take place a little bit later? God, I, I don't get it. I mean, we're thankful for God's grace and mercy for us. But for someone else, I mean, seriously, God, have you seen what he's done? Have you heard what she said? You're going to have grace and mercy on them? I mean, me, I can understand. I was never that bad. Sometimes we get into this comparison about God's grace and love and mercy for us. I'm thankful God saved me and forgave me. You know, I really wasn't that bad. But can you imagine this person over here? I mean, look what they're involved in. They will never, ever surrender their life to Christ. I I just can't see it. I can't imagine it. Now, it doesn't say that he surrendered to Christ, but he responded meekly and humbly. God took note of that response and responded in grace and mercy. Grace. The opposite of what we would say. We would look at a guy like Ahab and his wife Jezebel and we would say, get him, God. Get him. Get him more. Get him back for all the mad and and evil and sinful things he's done. And yet God reaches out with some grace and some mercy. Many different definitions about grace. You've heard them, seen them. Grace, G-R-A-C, God's riches at Christ's expense. We get the blessings of what God has to offer at the expense of what Christ paid on the cross. In other words, we can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's been called unmerited favor. We're thankful that he's done things for us. We don't understand how he could do it for others. Just in the last week or two, another powerful illustration of that comes to mind. We look around at our our world and and we see a culture full of sin, a culture full of evil, a a culture that seems to, to kind of mock in the face of God. We say, how in the world would any one of these ever come to God? Well, God's been working on one particular individual, one of the most well known popular, one of the best-selling rap artists and entertainers of all time. And back in the day, he'd he'd tell you how good he was. Talking about a man by the name of Kanye West. A man whose almost every song in the category or in the album would be mentioned as explicit because of the language and words used. Against God and just with filth. One of his most popular songs is a song by the name of Gold Digger, which rhymes with another word he uses quite a bit. And yet this individual, involved in that, involved in some incredibly vulgar songs, 
videos, etc. over the years, has come out publicly to say he's given his life to Christ. He's got a pastor who's been investing into him. He put out a gospel album. Now here's, here's the, the thing that, that happens when something like that happens. He's getting flack from both sides. The mainstream entertainment community is looking at him as, well, maybe he's doing this for financial reasons to sell out to the Christians and get their money. And many Christians are looking at him saying, I can't believe he gave his life to Christ. Don't you know what he's done before? It's not going to last. It's not real. He's getting criticized from both sides. I don't know the heart. God knows the heart. But here's what I've seen. I've listened to the album. He's formed what he calls Sunday services, and he's held all around the nation. I watched an entire service. It looks nothing like Alger A.G. But songs are sung about Christ. A gospel message is preached where they talk about sin and repentance. And the songs that are sung about Christ, there is more gospel in his songs than many Christian songs I listen to. Including the Christian rap. I've told you before that. That's one that I listen to quite a bit. And I've thought about it. It's, it's really interesting. Many of the Christian rap hip-hop artists have little by little kind of gone from the gospel to positive. Because they find there's greater acceptance and, and we can reach more people if we just kind of give them a positive rap experience. No curse, no cuss words. Every now and then, maybe we'll mention God, but it's, it's positive. It's going to be accepted more. More people are then going to hear, and they'll hear the message. And that's completely opposite from what Kanye's doing. Every single song is the gospel. He's got some unique, he's got some unique pairings on his album. He was making these non-Christians who were partnering with him on his album declare that they would not be involved in premarital sex while he would use them to put this album together. It's wild. It's kind of crazy. And everywhere he goes, it, listen, he is a young Christian. Everyone's going to be analyzing him. Oh, did you see what he said? Did, he, he missed a word here. He, he misstepped there. What were you like when you first came to Christ? We're, many times we're analyzing as a decades-old Christian to someone who's in a, an extremely well-known spotlight. I saw an interview just last week. His album's been out two weeks. He's been on a lot of interviews, and one particular late-night talk show host brought him out and asked the question everybody's wondering. Because he said, I'm not making the kind of music I made before, only gospel, only music for God. So the late night host said, so would you consider yourself to be a Christian rapper now? Because that, that's, that's a big thing. In the Christian community, many say, well, I'm not a Christian rapper. I'm a rapper who happens to be a Christian. I just, I just make good music, and, but, but I'm a Christian. 
So they're wanting to see, would he say, yes, I'm a Christian rapper? His answer was very simple. He said, I'm a Christian everything. Now listen, this, this kind of blows our minds. Some of you, you've never heard of him before. You say, who in the world is that? Don't go Googling a lot of stuff. You'll bring up a lot of old stuff. Some of you, you've been right on top of this. But in our minds, we look at him in a similar way that maybe Elijah would have looked at King Ahab. Again, Ahab did not, God's word did not say he repented and surrendered to God, but he responded in humility, he responded in fasting and meekness, and as a result of that change, God relented in grace. There still were consequences to come, but God extended mercy. God extended grace. So here's the thing for us. You know that person in your family? You know that person in the job? You know that neighbor? You know that person in the community that you always bump into? You know the one whose mouth is filthy, whose attitude stinks, who seemed to be so against God that you could never see them coming to God? God's grace and God's mercy extends to them just like it extended to you and to me. That's a powerful reminder in the midst of an ungodly world. Sometimes when we get in our, our little bubble and we say, hey, it's us and everybody else stinks. Everybody else, they're just so far against God. And that's true. There's a lot of people that are against God. But in the midst of an ungodly culture, would you and I be willing to stand upon God's word? Would you and I be willing to know that God sees all? Nothing is escaping his attention. Would you and I be willing to speak out God's truth? And would you and I be willing to understand God's grace? Mm -hmm.